Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, we are starting our new series. We'll work our way through this book over, I, I don't know, uh, several months, I would think at least. Uh, Galatians is such an interesting book. I find it such a fascinating book as we turn to it and we consider Paul, the human author of this book, the Apostle Paul. Uh, we find this man who is, as he's writing it, clearly he's, he's fired up. We find him exercised. He's, he's, uh, he's not holding back. We find Paul being confrontational in this book. Uh, we find him sharp in his criticism. I would suggest probably even uncomfortably so for some of us in some of the things that he says. Uh, but not only do we find him that way, being confrontational and so on, but we find this apostle who is also very much loving the people that he's writing to. He loves these precious people. He loves the Lord Jesus Christ and the good news of his grace that saves sinners, of whom he counted himself the foremost of all sinners. We find this apostle who is on a God-given mission, who is spending himself and his very life in order to fulfill that mission and to bring this message of good news to the Gentile nations and then to defend the purity of this message. In the letter of this that we have before us, this book that is written to the Galatians, Paul is dealing with and confronting a teaching that had evidently made inroads. It had penetrated into a number of the Galatian churches. It was a teaching that on one hand might not seem to some perhaps to be a huge deal or a huge difference, but it is something that Paul will call a different gospel. It is a different gospel that actually renders it no gospel at all. It is no good news at all. It is a teaching that destroys the message of good news, that if believed would leave one damned, that's what's at stake. This teaching destroys the gospel message by corrupting the reality, the biblical teaching, that a person is justified, declared righteous before God, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, not of any works, simply through faith alone. And it is that last word that is key here, that the sinner is justified not by any activity or any work of our own doing, but simply by believing. It is not by believing and then going on to add other good works or demonstrate it by our, or, or uh, yeah, adding to, 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 to our faith other good works that, that stands as part of our, the grounds of our justification or the instrument by which we receive God's gift of justification. Rather, we are justified as a gift of God's grace by the instrument of faith alone. This is the only way a sinner is united to Christ, is justified, and, and receives all the other than all the other blessings of salvation that flow from this union with Christ that is by faith. I, I'm excited to get into Galatians to unpack these things further. And my hope is that as we do this and there's more that we'll talk about than simply justification, but that is a major theme of the letter. 
And my hope is that as we go through this, that it will sharpen our own grasp and our own love for this doctrine, for this truth, that one is justified sola fide by faith alone. So that first of all, we might ourselves just be encouraged by it. We might be strengthened by it. We might have perhaps a strengthened assurance of our salvation that comes from understanding that we are justified solely on the basis of what Christ has done, received by believing, uh, not by any of our works. This is the doctrine that will enable us to have hope and any measure of confidence in our worst of moments that we might recall this and remember, though I am sinful and I've blown it again, my only hope of standing is Christ. And, and that's what scripture teaches. That's a good and solid ground to have my hope. This is allows us, enables us to press on in the faith. Likewise, when we're at our peak moment where we have uh, obeyed and we find in ourselves joyfulness at the things of the Lord and a desire for holiness, this reality of justification by grace alone through faith alone also keeps us grounded. He can keep us humble in that moment, realizing that none of these deeds have added to this or, or, or make me more worthy of standing before God because we are justified solely by God's grace through faith alone. In Christ Jesus. So first, my hope would be as we, as we clarify, hopefully, and, and, and come to fuller understanding of this, we would appreciate this doctrine more for our own edification and benefit. But also that we might gain further clarity and understanding that we might be further able to recognize errors where they show and to defend against it, to guard the purity of this. It amazes me as we will see as we go through this, that the churches of Galatia, they were founded by the Apostle Paul himself. And yet as he writes this book, they were already, Paul will say in verse 6, that they are so quickly deserting God and the gospel. They are so quickly deserting this gospel message that Paul taught them, that they believed when he was on his mission in Galatia. We might wonder with such strong language in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another. You think, what crazy manner of teaching was this, that they abandoned this? What, What pagan teaching, what was this that was coming in? And as we go, we will see that what was being taught by these other teachers is that they were demanding that Christians also keep the ceremonial law, especially this matter of circumcision. This was kind of the tip of the spear, this matter of circumcision. These teachers were known as Judaizers. We've mentioned these teachers before. They, they, they come up in a number of different books in the New Testament. It plagued the early church. And we'll see more of this. We'll talk more about this in days to come. But these teachers, they would have affirmed that Jesus is the Messiah. The Judaizers affirmed Christ is the Messiah. They would have affirmed that he died and that he rose again bodily from the grave. They would have affirmed that God saves in his grace. They would have affirmed the importance of faith. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. They affirmed these teachings. But they also said, if you want to truly be saved, it's not enough that you just believe in Christ Jesus. 
you must also be circumcised and go on to keep the ceremonial law of Moses. We see this very explicitly said in Acts chapter 15, uh, in verse 1 and in verse 5. There were those teaching that, that you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. You cannot be saved unless you keep the ceremonial law of Moses. Again, one could, might wonder, why is that so bad? Why is that so bad? I mean, Paul himself, in Acts 16, had Timothy circumcised. Uh, later in Galatians, twice in Galatians, he's going to tell us circumcision or not circumcised, this doesn't really matter. Think, well, then if some people are just, in, you know, really believe in the importance of circumcision, that that's important, then what, what's really the big deal? And yet Paul will call what they are preaching and teaching another gospel, a different gospel, one that leaves people damned. It is the way in which they are teaching circumcision, which we will get to more and more as we go through this. As a church and as individual Christians, we certainly want to be those who move on from the foundational matters of the Christian faith to grow in our understanding of all of what the Bible touches on and teaches, all of God's word. But we must never lose sight of the gospel and the core of the gospel that sinners are justified by God's grace alone through faith alone. If anything is added to this matter, if anything is added to faith when it comes to how a person receives justification, it becomes a different gospel. That's what Paul will get at in Galatians. And everything else you say and believe now doesn't matter. However accurate it may be, you might as well pack it all up. It's a different gospel. It's no gospel at all. It, it is amazing to me that Paul will take this whole matter of Christian faith and Christian doctrine and everything it teaches on, and he, and he brings it all down to this one fine point where this, this one fine teaching of justification by faith to where if you affirm that, it, that one is justified by faith alone, you're fine. But if you say it's by faith and circumcision or faith and, as we will see, anything else, then you've completely destroyed the whole of the Christian faith. The gospel's corrupted, and you're damned, and everyone is damned who believes that. It doesn't matter how much they get doctrinally right in other areas. The Judaizers could have been wonderful, maybe even in their Trinitarian doctrine. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could have affirmed all of that. They could have affirmed the deity of Christ, and yet Paul says they preach another gospel. This is how significant this issue of justification by faith alone is. This is why, if you think of the Reformation, this is why Martin Luther and others could argue and say that the church, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls, is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. If you lose that, the church falls flat. That's why this, this was... 
is often referred to as the material principle or cause of the Reformation. This was the stuff that the Reformation was made of. This was the core root issue. Roman Catholics to this day will still affirm Trinitarian doctrine that we would affirm. That was not, up, that was not denied by uh, the Reformers. That was one of the areas they said was left untainted uh, by the Roman Catholic Church. And yet, clearly they could see when it comes to this matter of justification, if you don't have this aspect correct, then even your Trinitarianism is not going to save you. This is how significant this issue is. For Paul, it didn't matter if these opponents, these Judaizers, could be co-belligerents with him against maybe the the moral rot of the Roman Empire. Morally speaking, they would have believed many of the same things. They would have been on the same page in many of the same moral matters. And yet that's not enough to make Paul hold his tongue. That's not enough for Paul to just say, well then, we'll just let it go. It does not stop him from this withering rebuke that we find in Galatians. I've said this several weeks ago when we were still in Matthew, but I do have concern that uh, various influential voices and views today are leading or could lead conservative, reformed churches away from the doctrine of justification, the doctrine that the Bible teaches, the doctrine that we find in Galatians. I think at the very least, we should acknowledge that if that could happen in Galatia, these churches established by the Apostle Paul himself, and it could happen so quickly, as Paul says, then it, it can happen anywhere. And so even as we, you know, for, for many years have affirmed the five solas of the Reformation, and that we are, and, and, and these five solas are, we had a conference on the five solas years ago. Uh, these are good f- phrases. They are helpful phrases but they are like labels on a very large container that, that once you, you get into it, there's a lot there. Uh, so, um, so they're not just tags that we just sort of throw around, you know, to, as, as uh, you know, well, yeah, we affirm these things. And, and, and if we don't really understand what, they're, what they mean, uh, then, then we're, we can be in trouble. We can think we stand firm, but if we don't really fully grasp what's, what's driving these five solas, then uh, we can find ourselves vulnerable. And uh, again, those, those five solas, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, just arrive, often called the five solas of the Reformation, just sort of organizing the, the principles, core principles of the Reformation around these five solas, sola meaning alone in Latin, and... Uh, the reformers themselves did not use this phrase. This, these phrases are, this arises later on, uh, but it is a good summary. Uh, sola Scriptura, that the ultimate and final authority for all matters of, of doctrine and practice in the church are the scriptures, the scriptures alone. Uh, not scriptures and church being co-equal in their authority, but scriptures alone. And because they believed that, then they went to scripture and they found, again, this doctrine of justification and saw the church had corrupted this, and, and that's how this got going. Uh, so sola scriptura, then we have sola uh, gratia, that we are justified, sinners are justified by grace alone. It's a gift of God's grace. 
through faith alone, that's sola fide, uh, by Christ alone, in Christ alone, because of what he has done on the grounds of what Christ has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection alone. He is the sole mediator between God and man. It is not Mary co-mediator. It is not me contributing to my justification as well or some other saint or somebody else. It's on the basis of Christ alone, that solus Christus. And then all of this is to the glory of God alone. And that we'll see even when we get into verse 5 as well, which we'll see next week. So again, we, we, we don't want these things to just be tags that we affirm, but, but they're markers of, of, of depth of doctrine for, for all of those five souls. And much of that we will see as we go through this book of Galatians. So we're going to unpack these things over the next several months. I'm sure it'll be several months. Um, today, we're just going to launch this with looking at the first two verses of, chap- of chapter one. Uh, th- these are verses that could be kind of throwaway words, potentially, as we, you know, if we're just picking up this book to read it, we might just kind of read quickly through the first couple of verses to get on to the meat of the book. But there are important things stated here that I want us to consider. Even as Paul introduces himself and begins this book, he is laying the groundwork for the letter's argument. We'll see in the first several verses that Paul is contending that there is just one gospel. And in these opening verses, we'll see that there is one ultimate source of this one gospel. There is one gospel that comes from one ultimate source, namely God himself. That's that's what Paul is, is driving at. And we'll see this even as he's just uh, in, you know, saying who the letter is from and, and who he's addressing it to. So let's, we're going to read verses 1 to 5, and then we're just going to look at the first two verses afterwards. But let's read Galatians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The first point of our outline today is that the gospel message is not from men. As we think about the source of this, the gospel message is not from men. So as this letter opens, Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul, an apostle. That's a very common thing for Paul to do when he writes a letter to begin identifying himself and stating his office. He is an apostle. It is more than simply a title for him. It is a reminder of his unique office that he holds in the church. He is one of the apostles. He mentions his apostleship in various letters, in most of his letters, uh, right out of the gate, even in letters that are not adversarial in nature. So, for example, in First and Second Timothy, Paul writes to his friend and co-laborer Timothy, and he introduces himself and, and puts down that he is an apostle. But we also see in other letters, like Second Corinthians, and notably here in Galatians, that his appeal to his apostleship is particularly pronounced. And it is this way because in Corinth and here in Galatia, Paul's apostleship was questioned. And this was part of what helped 
make place or give place, make room for this new false teaching that was coming in and corrupting the gospel that Paul had proclaimed there. In Galatians, he's going to spend much of the first two chapters explaining his apostleship, defending his apostleship and his relationship to the other apostles and so on. And the reason that he's doing this, and it's the same in in 2 Corinthians as well, but the reason he's doing this is not because he's been personally slighted and he'd like to reestablish his own honor, because he's concerned about his own dignity. Uh, Paul knew how to receive graciously uh, attacks against him and people working against him. Um, Even if you remember back in Philippians, he rejoiced when the gospel was proclaimed Even out of bad motives, remember there are people who are trying to afflict Paul in their preaching of the gospel, which seems very very strange. And yet he says he rejoices so long as the gospel is preached. And again, one of the differences there versus what's happening in Galatians is that those men were actually preaching the gospel. It wasn't a corrupted gospel. And so even though they were were not on the same page as Paul and things, they're trying to... uh, offend Paul and and afflict him further as he is in jail and they're out preaching the gospel, uh, Paul could still rejoice in that. He knew how to be personally slighted and not be offended and have to reestablish, you know, his own dignity or whatever it might be. What's happening here is his defense of his apostleship is tied directly to the main matter of the book Namely, this issue of justification by faith alone. It'll be clear as we continue to work our way through Galatians that Paul's apostleship was questioned and undermined as a way of undermining ultimately Paul's message, making room for these corruptions that were introduced, uh, undermining him. Paul's not a real apostle. He's not tied to the Jerusalem apostles in the same way that, that we even are. These other men, they come from Jerusalem. We find this elsewhere uh, in Acts 15, for example. Actually, later even in, in Galatians 2, we'll see this. They came from Jerusalem. They say, we're better tied to Jerusalem than Paul. He's a bit of a rogue. He's out here on his own. He claims to be an apostle, but he's not really. And here's really what we believe. Here's really what the Jerusalem church teaches, this kind of a thing. The opponents so doubt in the Galatians about Paul. And this gave them footing for their correction of him. No doubt that's how it was it was, it was portrayed, it was presented, it was taught. We're correcting the errors of Paul, who's something of a rogue. So when we see Paul asserting and defending his apostleship in Galatians, it is ultimately about asserting and defending the gospel, the message that he brought. His message and his apostleship cannot be separated. He is commissioned by Christ to go and to proclaim this specific message. And so when he says here, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, he is saying the gospel I preach is not man's gospel. In fact, he says that explicitly in verse 11. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. When he says it's not from men in verse 1, he's speaking of its source. The source of his apostleship and therefore his gospel message is not men. And again, that's what he further explains there in verse 12, which I just read. 
It wasn't men that came up with this idea that, hey, Paul would be a great guy to do this. Let's send him out. Here's the message he should take. It wasn't men that came up with this idea. John Calvin, along with others, they point out that in many ways, all ministers can say this, that the source of all true ministry is God. That God calls a man, equips a man, it's God's message that's taken, and so on. But then, in the case of an ordinary minister, that calling is then affirmed by other men, by elders and by a church, the church. Hands are laid on that man, and he is called by the agency of men to the ministry. But Paul says that his apostleship was not from man, but it's also not through man. Meaning that men were not the agents of his calling and his sending. And this is something that is unique to apostles. They were all set apart and chosen directly by Christ himself. And I won't chase this for time's sake, but I would argue Matthias as well fits that as well. And that's, that that's why they cast lots in Acts 1 uh, was because... Christ, they're trusting the Lord will determine how this lot is going to be cast. That's how it's presented in, in Acts 1, and I think that's what the thinking was. Whereas, and that's why we don't see, they don't cast lots when they're appointing elders in different places. But with apostles, this was different. So Paul's apostleship, and therefore the message that he brought to Galatia, was not something that was from men. It is no ordinary message. It was no ordinary calling. The gospel is, and Christianity is not simply a religion among many. It is not simply man's efforts to know and understand God. And so we don't treat it as something that is malleable, as just another expression of man's efforts to get at the creator or whatever. And there are people and have been people who treat Christianity in this way. Who will argue that we need to reinterpret things every generation. We interpret it for ourselves now in our community, in our current circumstances. And it's going to look different than in previous generations. This worked for them and now it's different. This is how many have taken it and continue to. But we don't treat the gospel as something malleable. Paul did not see it as something that could be tweaked and played with. Because ultimately, its source is not in men. The Bible's claim is that this message is not man's message, that this is not just another religion of man trying to get at God the best he can. And so this explains Paul's fire to to make sure this message is not corrupted. Because it's ultimately a message and a mission that's not his and it's not from any other man. And this leads logically to the second point then, that the gospel message is from God. This is God's message ultimately. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. His apostleship came to him through Jesus Christ and God the Father. The Father and the Son set aside Saul of Tarsus, this one who was untimely born, as Paul describes himself, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. 
And we read about that in the book of Acts, chapter 9. We see Paul's uh, going to Damascus. He recounts that later in the book of Acts as well. We can see where Christ, the risen, glorious Lord, appears to him, and it's a blinding light. But he also recounts it, in other words, right here in Galatians 1, verse 15. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him to the, among the Gentiles, and, and then he continues. The Father, Paul says, had elected him before he was born even, set me apart before I was born. And then in time, in God's providential time, revealed the Son to him, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul means when he says, his calling was not from men nor through man, but He's saying very directly from and through Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is unique. One interesting thing about this formulation, the way Paul says this here, is that Jesus Christ is obviously not merely a human man to Paul. He is contrasted here with man. His calling is not through man, but through Jesus and the Father. We have here the first two persons of the Trinity. Paul is saying he is divinely called and commissioned. We might wonder, is Paul Trinitarian? We have the Father and the Son, but he makes no mention of the Spirit here. But as we go through Galatians, uh, we will see Paul's understanding of the Spirit. We will see Paul's Trinitarianism make its way out. Uh, for example, in chapter 3, verse 3, he reveals there that the Spirit is the one who applies salvation, the salvation of Christ, to believers. He says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's saying, when you began as a Christian, you began by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit enabled you to believe. You began uh, by the Spirit. And moreover, Paul is clear that it is... Uh, that the Christian life uh, continues to be empowered by the Spirit. Having begun by the Spirit, you don't now reject that and just simply go about some fleshly uh, life in order to try to perfect yourself or whatever. You continue in the Spirit. Paul will, will go on to talk about uh, the Spirit more in chapter 5. Talking, He'll say, walk by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, talk about the fruit of the Spirit, so Paul certainly affirms the triune God, though in, in, in verse 1 here, he simply mentions the Father and the Son. And again, he's calling, his calling is a divine appointment. That's what he's saying. That's what he's getting at. The Father is described here also to be the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Of all the things that Paul could say here about the Father, he says that he raised the Son from the dead. Again, John Calvin, he reasons here that this is likely a subtle reminder that though Paul wasn't called by Christ during his earthly ministry, his calling is indeed from the risen and exalted Christ. And it is the same Heavenly Father who raised Christ from the dead who commanded Paul to make that exertion of his power known among the Gentiles. He was to go and testify that Christ is risen from the dead. He is the risen Lord, raised by the power of the Father. So as, as 
the, these Judaizers are in Galatia and they're discrediting Paul and his, his apostleship and he's not really connected to the Jerusalem apostles and he's, again, kind of uh, rogue. And he, he, wasn't even a, he wasn't even a follower of Jesus in his earthly life here. And so how could he really know? You know, we have the truth here of, of, of how this works. And Paul is, I think this is, this is a reminder here that the God who raised Christ in power also has called Paul. That his calling as an apostle is no less glorious. In fact, it was the risen, exalted Christ who appeared to him and called him. So the God who raised Jesus in power is the source and agent of Paul's apostleship. And of course, Paul's only argument is not that he got this directly from God. If somebody says, you know, hey, my message is actually directly from God, we would be rightly skeptical of that. We should be. I trust you would be. And so this is not Paul's only argument, though it is important and it is foundation. He will go on in chapters 1 and 2 to talk about how actually he, he, he did eventually meet up with the other apostles and we, they were in full agreement about what the gospel message was. So these Judaizers are wrong or they're lying about that. Moreover, he will go on uh, in, the, in the heart of the book, in chapters 3 through 5, he's going to argue from Old Testament scriptures that one is justified by grace alone through faith alone. He'll use the example of Abraham uh, for, as one example, that he was justified before he'd ever been circumcised. And so therefore, circumcision can't be uh, uh, you know, necessary in order to be justified. the gospel message ultimately does not come from man, then what is it? Well, it is God's. It is God's message. It is God's gospel. And this makes all of this that much more important. It is all the more consequential. It is all the more important to not corrupt this message as well. Paul understood himself as an ambassador for God, as one who speaks on behalf of God. That the gospel is ultimately God's appeal to sinners. God's word to sinners. We see this very explicitly in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, that is, those he's reconciled, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This gospel message is God's message. He is the saving God. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He is the word of God. The word that we proclaim is God's message. It's right for his people. Paul is the example. I think 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21 there. Uh, he's saying he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's not simply speaking of himself and other apostles, but the church generally. The ministry of reconciliation. We, we are ambassadors for Christ. When we speak 
the gospel to other people and we share this with other people, it is not simply I have an idea that might be helpful or good or take it or leave it, but it's, it's we, we stand there on behalf of another, on behalf of Christ, on behalf of God, and we implore people to be reconciled to God. It's God's message ultimately. And that is good news. It's good news because this, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 there, we we become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is a gift that God gives, that we receive it simply by faith, by believing. That God is the one who saves. There's comfort to be had in this. It is good news for a sinful world. Again, there's so much... Things are a mess. Society's a, I mean, as much as ever, it seems to me, a disaster. And we say this lots. But we have a message. We do have a message. We don't know all the different, the best political solutions to this or that. There's much that is uncertain and unknown. We can have opinions. We seek to make our opinions about these things as biblical as possible. But what can we be certain of? We, we do have good news for sinners. And there are sinners all around us. And it is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe. This doesn't change, regardless of how good or bad things might get around us. We do have good news. This we can be certain of. We, we are ambassadors for Christ. This gospel message is not from man. It is from God. The, the, just one other thing on that. This is also why when we go and we, we say these things firmly and you know, we, we pray that we would always say this with love towards other people. But, but when the accusation of arrogance comes because we won't bend on some of these things, we will not bend, <laughs> that we just, we, ha- we let that slide off our backs because it's God's message ultimately. It's his message. I have no right to alter it or change it or to lessen it. So the gospel message is from God. Thirdly, the authority of God drives the church's mission. I've basically already been saying this. We talked about it last week when we were in Psalm 93, but I, I do want to stress this a little further. So Paul has identified himself as the sender of the letter, but then also mentions in verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me. So again, Paul's mission comes directly from God, but he's not isolated from the rest of the believers, from the other churches. Again, he'll talk about his relationship to the other apostles and and so on. But here he mentions those who are with him, who presumably would share his concern. I am writing this to you, but I'm with all these other brothers with me. We all have the same concern. Paul's not rogue. He's not isolated. He's not on his own. And then Paul, at the end of verse 2, mentions the recipients of the letter. He says, to the churches of Galatia. As we consider these, who these people are, these churches of Galatia, it is a reminder of the church's mission broadly, the Great Commission, we find at the end of Matthew 28. And it's also a reminder of Paul's mission in particular as an apostle of this Great Commission who went to the Gentile churches In Acts chapter 13, which we read most of that chapter earlier, 
We find there Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, He and Barnabas had set off from Antioch in Syria. So Syria is just north of Palestine. That's where Paul and Barnabas were, and they were sent off on this missionary journey. They they went, uh, they sailed to the island of Cyprus. They were there for a time, but then they went to a city called Perga, which is in the southern part of what is um, modern-day Turkey, kind of central. It's on the Mediterranean border. They land there, and then they, uh, the, the Acts just moves quickly from Perga. They end up going up to another city called Antioch, but this one is in a different region. This one is Antioch in Pisidia, or Pisidian Antioch. And Pisidia, that region at this time, was part of the Roman province of Galatia. So the Roman province of Galatia uh, ran kind of through central, what is now central Turkey, almost right up to the Black Sea and, and down almost right to the Mediterranean. And so Paul ends up in Antioch in Pisidia, and the rest of chapter 13 and chapter 14, basically the entirety of his first missionary journey, is spent in the Roman province of Galatia. Now, when you read Acts 13 and 14, Luke nowhere says Galatia. He never mentions the word Galatia, but that's where these cities uh, were. And when you consider what Paul does and what Acts 13 and 14 reveal to us about his time there, I think it's some of the most remarkable uh, chapters, in, in certainly in the book of Acts. I, it hits me every time. And I'm not going to read all of this, but I, I would invite you to turn there and just kind of flip through it as, as I just talk through this. But just by way of reminder, we read much of, of 13 Paul goes into the synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia, and then he puts on this master class of, of preaching. He preaches Christ from the Old Testament. He gives the history of Israel, and then he preaches Christ as a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. He's the son of David. He came to justify sinners. And then the next week, all kinds of people show up. And yet we read that some of the Jews, they respond with reviling Paul. They're jealous, we're told. They're reviling him. They stir it up. And so Paul then kind of, you know, washes his hands of them and says, then I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And also this, he says, is a fulfillment of Scripture as well, as he quotes Isaiah 49, 6. And many Gentiles, we are told, rejoice. And they glorify the word of the Lord. God's word has come to them. They believe. They're grateful that salvation is for them as well. They believe in this and they rejoice. But Paul and Barnabas are eventually driven out of the city by persecution. We're told at the end of chapter 13, they come to Iconium, which was another city in Galatia. There they once again preach. Some of the Jews and some of the Greeks were told believe. But again, they were once more opposed And yet even so, they didn't leave right away. They were told they stayed for a long time there, which is interesting. Uh, Their their, uh, opponents stirred up the minds against the brothers. You think, oh, so they left. Luke says in verse 3, so they remained there for a long time. Okay, they continue to preach even though many were opposing them there. But again, eventually the city was divided over their teaching. And the men escaped a plot to stone them. They find out about this desire these men have to, to kill Paul and Barnabas. So they escape and they leave. And they flee to Lystra and to Derbe. Uh, first to Lystra, then we'll see on to Derbe. Both of these also cities in Galatia. And in Lystra, Paul 
goes on to heal a crippled man in the midst of his ministry there. And both he and Barnabas are suddenly lauded as being gods come down to the people. You remember this? Uh, they think they call uh, Barnabas Zeus and Paul they call Hermes because he's the chief speaker. And so they barely, they tear their clothes and they, they, they barely talk these men out of their crazy desire to offer sacrifices to them. But they don't stay beloved very long in Iconium, in this city, or sorry, in Lystra. Eventually, we're told Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium, the previous two cities, and they persuaded the crowd to stone Paul. And that's precisely what they did. They line him up and they hurl stones at him. And then they drag him outside the city and they leave him there assuming he's dead. So it tells you just how bad that was for Paul. They think he's dead. So they drag him out there and leave him there. But then amazingly, the Christians come and they find Paul still alive. And we're told he went from there to Derby with Barnabas. And the, the, the narrative moves very quickly here. Uh, it just kind of sails on through. But somewhere in all of this, Paul makes enough of a recovery. They continue to preach the gospel in Derby. So he's been stoned for this in Lystra. They go to the next city. He recovers somewhat, and they just carry on preaching the gospel message. And then, what's maybe more astonishing and amazing is at some point they decide they're going to return through all these cities where they've just gone through all this trouble, where Paul was stoned and left for dead. They decide they're going to go back the way they came. And as they go, we're told in 1422, they strengthened and encouraged the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Imagine hearing that from this man. I, I think that's amazing. And then as chapter 14 ends, they end up back in Syrian Antioch. They sail all the way back to their place of departure. And so ends Paul's first missionary journey. Again, notice the vast majority of that was in Galatia. So as Paul writes these letters to the churches of Galatia, think about the skin that Paul has in this game already, so to speak. The blood that he literally shed, the cost it was to him to go about this mission and establish these churches. And now here come these Judaizers with a false gospel and false message upsetting, unsettling these churches. That if they believe this message, they would be severed from Christ. I find it so interesting at the very end of the book of Galatians, after all has been said, all of the argumentations in, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He, he doesn't appeal to his sufferings in their midst right out of the gate, but at the end, it's just kind of almost like tagged on, P.S. Remember, remember what happened? Because part of the accusation against him, we'll see in chapter 1, is that Paul's a man-pleaser. That's why he's not insisting on circumcision. He knows that's not going to go over well with the men. And so that's really what's driving him. He's, he's a people-pleaser. And at the very end, Paul, I mean, 
He bears on his body the marks of Jesus. Paul is no ivory tower theologian. He is not just a keyboard warrior. He is not simply spitting venom in this letter from a world away just because he, you know, it's easy because he doesn't know them or whatever. These people to Paul are precious souls. And when I think about what Acts 13 and 14 and Paul's ministry in Galatia, you consider what drives a man to carry on through all of this, to endure and to keep going. I think certainly Paul was filled with compassion for lost souls. We see that flow out of him in various places, uh, the book of Romans. But first and foremost, Paul had a charge and a commission from God himself that overshadowed and outweighed everything else. He was an ambassador with a divine message to proclaim. And so he pressed on as a soldier would by God's grace. Certainly the spirit of God was with him powerfully. And he knew that. He expresses that. So that even after he was gone from Galatia, when he heard of false teachers that had gone in and now were troubling and corrupting the gospel, God's gospel, he took up his pen and wrote as the apostle that he was and under inspiration of the Spirit. While we are not apostles today, the same authority continues to drive the church's mission. We have apostolic writing here. We have God's word to us. We hold it in our hands. We hold this letter, this precious and important letter. The gospel that Paul proclaimed and the gospel that he defended continues to be the one and only gospel with one ultimate authority, namely God. And so again, as we've been saying, the authority for the church's mission ultimately comes from God. And it is found in his word. And so this same message and mission ought to drive us to endure, to proclaim good news, to support others who proclaim the good news of the gospel, missions, and also to contend wherever necessary for the truth of the gospel. Whether we are contending with just an unbelieving world who wants nothing of God, who deny any knowledge of him and unrighteousness and suppress that truth, or whether we would have to contend with any who would corrupt the sacred truth of the gospel from within the church or within the church broadly speaking. And so let us not fear this effort, fear this task. As overwhelming as all of this can be at times, let us not shrink back. Let us press on in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
we once again thank you for your word. We recognize our great need for your word. Otherwise, we would be left in darkness. Father, I pray that you would forgive us where we have succumbed to the fear of man. Father, I pray that you would free us from such things. Father, where we fear suffering and we act in self-preservation above all things, where we cross a line to where that might become sinful, where we're being driven by our fears and fear of man, forgive us for this. I do pray that you would help us to possess a great love for you and, and, and fear of you, awe of you, that we would be amazed by the fact that you would make it so that we would be able to worship you, that we would be able to be reconciled to you, and that we would be able to be part of your ongoing work of spreading your message of good news to fallen sinners. Father, I pray that you would just make this our, our great joy. Father, we confess that often it is not. It is not the joy we want it to be in us. We lament this, Lord, and we just pray for your help. We call out to you for mercy, for grace, for courage, and for strength. Father, that each person would, would use the gifts you've given them to build up your precious saints. Father, that even if we are not those who are out on street corners proclaiming Christ, that it would still be our great desire to contribute to the work of the church in any ways that we can, in ways that are keeping with our giftedness and with our callings. Father, I pray that you'd help us to not be frantic in any way, that we would be resting and trusting in your sovereignty, and yet burdened also by the various responsibilities you've given us that we might obey you in our calling, in our commission. Father, we pray that those who we have had the opportunity to share the gospel with, friends and neighbors and loved ones, we pray that you would make it effective in souls, that people might believe, that you would yet fill this church and your true, true churches everywhere with sinners who've been graciously redeemed by you, our gracious God. Father, I pray that we would rest certain and secured knowing that you save because of what Christ has done. That we stand righteous before you in Christ and on account of him. And that this is received by faith alone and that our works are not seeking to add to this in any way. I pray that this would give us great joy wherever we might be today. Father, we just continue to look to you for mercy and for help in everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.